all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hey everyone, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your communist car podcast. I'm going to edit this episode just so that I can make it be a communist park podcast. <laughs> a park podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that was uh, Brandon just now. My name is Bryant, and there's also Connor here today. How are y'all doing? Doing good. Yeah, I'm all right. Cool. So today we are going to be talking about some of the early exploration vehicles in Antarctica, both the American snow cruiser and the uh, Soviet, let me get the pronunciation on this right, Karkovchanka. Uh, I'm probably even saying that wrong. If I can figure it out, I'll put the uh, Ukrainian and uh, Russian pronunciation in here from someone who knows what they're doing. Karkovchanka. Anyways, uh, before we get to that, we're going to do some project car updates. And as usual, I don't remember uh, what order we went in last time. Brandon, do you want to go first? Sure. It's It's been that season where like I haven't been doing that much, so it's pretty easy to go over the things that I have done. I finally put together a carburetor for my van. I, uh, I'm still missing a couple of bolts, which sounds like a big deal, but mostly I just need to go find something with a matching thread pitch and replace the one or two that i lost dude i bought an ultrasonic to clean my carburetors with oh i'm fucking in love i bought this (laughs) cheap harbor freight one and i won't say it did a good job but it it did in two hours what it would have taken me two hours to do scrubbing it so like that thing fucking nice yeah i i'm i'm in love with the ultrasonic now but yeah so i did that hadn't really put it back on the van yet because i don't know i'm just not really all that enthusiastic lately I've been driving the Cutlass every single day almost. It's It's been my daily driver. If I don't ride my bike somewhere, I drive the Cutlass. And uh, the transmission is definitely on its way out. But other than that, the car is holding up pretty well. I got all the power steering fixed. Uh, so I'm not just spraying a quart of power steering fluid all over the engine bay once every <laughs> two days. There was a good, solid like week and change, maybe two weeks, where I was steering. Like I was... I was had no power steering whatsoever and was just really having to muscle through it. And that, that era is over. And now, yeah, I went through, like, I don't have a right turn signal right now. I went through and fixed everything. And then after a week that stopped working. So naturally, well, I didn't realize that till you know, yesterday and I haven't had the chance to fix it yet. Cause I've been working a lot. And the only other thing is, uh, my battery died, but not because of the battery itself. Like my alternator was going out. And now, for some reason, my alternator only works sometimes. But I have like hmm. I have a gauge that tells me when my it's charging and what my battery's at. So if I ever get home and the battery's low, I just pull it out and charge it overnight. I'm pretty sure it's just a, a loose exciter wire, where like you know, the literally the like, the wire that tells your alternator that it needs to be charging. Yeah. Which yeah, if anyone doesn't know, your alternator is not constantly charging. It is it is charging when it is being told to through some sort of feedback loop. Uh, you know, I actually didn't know that, but it's very obvious as soon as you say it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, because it is technically a drain on power, 
it makes it wouldn't make sense for it to be charging all of the time. Yeah. And also, like, all my friends think I'm crazy because I'll just pull in the battery and charge it overnight, but no further away than I work or ever really drive on a daily basis. You can get by off of battery power with no alternator for, you know, 20, 30 yeah. miles. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> um, you know, I've, also, I've seen people put, like, a, what do you call it, a um, solar panel in their windshield to charge it <laughs> when it's sitting, you know? Well, actually, while we're talking about uh, battery problems and the potential solutions to them, when I worked at AutoZone and I knew I was quitting, I was like, oh, you know, I have not... This segment has been cut for legal reasons. Classic. I have a free battery ready to go, uh, and I, of course, I picked the like gold level one, not the not the regular one. I got the good one, so it's been sitting in the garage. And if I if my battery goes out, I have a spare. Price is so, no concern, literally. <laughs> yes. So the the key here is to solve my battery issues. I just have a spare battery. How I got it doesn't matter <laughs> having a spare battery very cool yeah uh, my, my alternator is right next to the power steering pump that was pissing fluid for you know two or three months so i can't help but feel like maybe uh just getting coated in like probably a gallon of power steering fluid <laughs> didn't which weirdly it squeaks a lot now and i'm like i know that the oil didn't degrade the metal or something i don't know maybe it's squeaking oh it might have yeah it, it, it probably had something to do with it it didn't do it any favors, but it's fine. It runs and drives. In spite of everything, I don't think any... You know, the the, uh, the 327 in my van is the only engine I have that might start comparably easy to the Cutlass. It doesn't run for shit, but it barely takes any effort to get it to start. And that's considering it's some mornings it's 25 degrees or, or lower here, and I don't have the choke hooked up. Yep. Yeah, I mean, really, all, all I've done is just, uh, you know, little little tinker stuff here and there. I have made the executive decision to either before or when I do my engine swap, I am going to completely upgrade my front suspension. Tubular A-arms, uh, coilovers, an upgraded sway bar. And that's just, that is just for now. Like, I'll do that first when I get around to doing the engine swap. Eventually, I'm going to make all of the uh, comparable upgrades to rear suspension, too. And I support your decisions there. This seems yeah. awesome. You, I feel like if you do all that, though, to me, I would think at least one track day, like an autocross event or something. I feel like you should do it. Even Now, it's going to be tough with a bench seat, uh, you know, if you do that. But I think it would be cool. Just saying. I'll race with a bench seat. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, you can do it. Yeah, just like I, I think the bench seat is the cooler option and the way to go. But, like, I, I get that it's not the racing choice. I'll just power through it. Shit, like yeah. the car's oh, yeah. not going to be so fast that it's throwing me out of my seat. Like even once I got the big block in it, it's it's all going to be low end torque. I might. Oh, it's not the engine might. power. It's not the engine power that's going to throw you around. <laughs> it's oh, it's no, turning I, that wheel real quick is what's going to throw you around. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not going to be like an exceptionally fast car, but I mean it will have three. If I if I ever get around to doing heads, it'll easily be a four or five hundred horsepower motor. Hmm. Okay. Oh, that's nothing. Oh, that's a week. Oh, man. You know, geez. <laughs> it would still qualify as a torque motor, dude. Yeah. Like, with new heads and the cam I have in it, you're looking at over 600 pound-feet of torque. Damn. I think you should autocross that car. Especially when coilovers and upgraded suspension. Oof. I would love to see it. Yeah, I was doing some reading and found out that your old-school knowledge is that you shouldn't even, like... Th there, there's a certain level of performance upgrades that you can go with, but you shouldn't... <laughs> You shouldn't put, like, 
bigger tires or bigger wheels and softer tires and all of that drag racing shit on this car until you have uh, done certain frame modifications because it's so inclined to ripping the frame apart. Yeah. I mean, dude, this car's a 67. Back then, like, I mean, not that 400 horsepower is nothing now, but, you know, these cars were making four, maybe 500 horsepower. And that's that's usually, like, what, what brake horsepower, where it's not including any accessories or transmission, like, and just n- not more than that, dude. It's, somebody might, like, a performance shop might get the car afterwards and make it, like, 600 horsepower, and that was back then the equivalent of, of now you slap a couple of turbos on an LS and you've got a 1,500 horsepower motor. Uh, so these cars were not built to really handle a whole lot more than that, so. Yeah. I'm probably going to do, like, some suspension stuff and do my drivetrain, and then chill out for a little while while i save do, money and do you already have uh subframe connectors on that or do you need them even this is this is a full frame car it is okay yeah but it's uh it's the frame's not boxed in it's like you know still like the channel like uh well yeah C, so are there like or whatever are there are there f- like frame uh rigidity upgrades you can add yeah uh there's cross members and uh like plates that you add to increase rigidity and and you do that before you start making like the big big horsepower numbers but basically, like you, you can make five or six hundred horsepower. But if you increase the suspension and uh, wheels and tires and everything to the point where you're going to hook up hard off the line, that's, that's when you're going to start breaking stuff. That's what I'm thinking. Is so I'm like, yeah. you know, might might not hurt to do some of that stuff. Yeah, and I'll get around to doing that. Like, there's a real part of me that if I ever get around, like to the point where I have like the free time and motivation to build a custom frame for the car, because I mean that seems like next level shit. Jeez, that's way more. Than- <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, and no, man. Like when it's a solid rear axle, there's there's like front suspension, like steering and like uh, suspension geometry that I don't understand well enough that I think I could make an honest improvement on it. But if you're talking about just the actual frame that the the body of the car mounts to and the rear suspension mounts to, I understand all of that stuff. Like if it involves going. F- in a straight line, I understand it pretty well, which sounds simple, but I'm talking about like ladder bars versus four link and so on and so on. It's really like the, you know, the maneuvering, the, you know, high speed handling stuff that I don't understand as well. So that being said, if I have the old frame and can mimic it and improve it where it needs to be and stiffen it where it needs to be and box it in, I do think I could make a frame from scratch. I would just have to use a front suspension kit to finish it off. But it also sounds like a lot of work. What's the trade-off between making something from scratch and reinforcing the frame as it is and boxing it in and all that? I don't know how hard it's going to be to weld everything together with the body on the frame. Oh, yeah. And in, and in my head, if I'm having to pull the body off the frame, might as well build something new. Okay. And would you need some kind of a like a jig to make the frame from? Or Yes, but a, 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 a jig for like a... a a frame like this is not as as I understand it is not as crazy as it sounds. Okay. I've I've seen people take a good concrete floor that was level and basically make a jig with chalk. Okay. Because if, if everything is square and your measurements are true, if your car frame is an eighth of an inch out of level across corners, that's yeah, not the end of it. And it'll probably be better than what GM did back in the seventies or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i don't know about gm but i know mopar was bad yeah i have heard that like uh in the 80s ford was building the fox body mustangs they were like up to an inch off 
like the wheelbase on either side. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's my, my best friend, who is a Mopar guy, uh, described it by saying that at, at all of the Dodge and Plymouth factories, every day was either a Monday or Friday. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I st- I've still barely done anything to the car, but I've just been enjoying driving it so much lately. I don't really know what I'm going to do next, but I, I'm kind of like reinvigorated with the car. Nice. And it's, uh, I want to start doing some, some more of the upholstery again. I kind of stopped fucking around with that a while back, but that's an easy thing to do at my house once I get some stuff moved around and I have my sewing machine in a place where I can more easily access it than, you know, I can do my door panels, my roof liner, and it'll all be pretty much together at that point. Re- recover my seats, maybe. That's a big project that I'm excited for but nervous about. Uh, this quickly turned into a future car update, so right. not anything <laughs> I'm actually... No, that counts. Yeah. That counts. Well, I talk about shit that like I'm planning on doing this oh, all the yeah. time. So. I've got all kinds of plans. <laughs> well, just uh, forgot to mention, I realize that one of the springs in the front is, is sunk pretty badly. If I take a hard right turn and the car is kind of facing downhill, something is scraping inside my suspension. Not bad, just enough that you can hear it. And I was like, well, if I'm doing the engine, like the big block's not going to weigh a ton more because of the way Oldsmobile did their big and small blocks this is still gonna weigh more and i might as well fix the suspension and if i'm gonna fix it i might as well upgrade it and if i'm gonna upgrade it i might as well you know be weird about it <laughs> that's car still front front drum brakes oh okay so doing all wow. this stuff i can i can throw disc spindles on nice. it too oh, which i yeah. have oh hell yeah that's that's a big upgrade there yeah i think everyone can relate anyone listening knows how that 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 process goes if i'm gonna fix this i might as well yeah blah 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 so well, dude, it seems crazy, but then, like, okay, let's look at it real objectively, and then, and then I'll call my car update for the week done. The stuff that I've been pricing out, and that's new A-arms, coilovers, sway bar, all the bushings, all the hardware, you know, pretty much everything that you need. I already have the disc spindles, so I'll have to get, you know, maybe rotors, calipers, stuff like that. So let's, let's more than I even think it is, we'll say two grand, and I have new front brakes, new front suspension... That would be that would cover everything I need to get the engine and transmission in the car, all of that. Yeah, we'll say two grand. Yeah, I'm I'm like I'm fucking jealous, dude. I have so many friends who come to me with bills and they're like, uh, "The shop said that I need all of this stuff, and it's, you know, it's fifteen hundred dollars, it's two thousand dollars, it's three thousand dollars." And I look at it and I'm like, "Well, yeah, I mean, between parts and labor, yes, that is what that costs. Like they're not ripping you off necessarily. It's it's just your car needs a lot of work. When you eliminate paying for labor out of that like dude i'm I'm paying less than some of my friends are are paying for like basic maintenance on a five-year-old car to do performance upgrades to my car that i'm really excited about and want to keep and like have be sick and fun to drive yeah and run from the cops from because as i mentioned before i had to do that the other day (laughs) you mentioned that off recording we should we should i'm being i'm being mysterious yeah (laughs) No, you know, you, like when you do the illegal shit and you're like, oh, I'm glad no cops are around to see that. And then you see that there was a cop around to see that. And you're like, well, I'm glad they're facing in the other direction. And then you see them pull a U-turn. And so you're like, well, their lights aren't on. And that means I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, you manage it. You got away this time. So, you know, a little round of applause yeah, in, for that. In one of two or three times ever, in one of two or three times ever, I, I could tell that the cop was about to pull me over and I got away. Usually I try and run and immediately I see lights. And... Uh, yeah. Um, if I see lights, I don't. I don't run. Uh, it's it ain't worth my license. 
Uh, well, yeah, because they, you know, you have a big fucking ID on your car. It's <laughs> yeah. usually the big problem, or it's very recognizable. Which, if you have a performance car, is usually also the case. So it's like you're fucked. But as long as those lights aren't on, you can. I have a turquoise fucking A body, and I was less than half a mile from my house, dude. Everybody knows where that car lives. Yeah. I was not about to do anything overly sketchy, but he was a few hundred feet behind me, and I was in my neighborhood, so I took all the turns that I knew I needed to make, and I got home. It was fine. Well, okay, all right. Also, since you told the story, I think you should also tell the next part of that. You ran from the cop, and then you went where? I went to a PSL meeting. (laughs) (laughs) If I got pulled over, I would have been late. <laughs> Actually, I I guess to to add the extra layer of, of weirdness about my personality, I ran from the cops to get home and then got my bike and rode my bike to a PSL meeting. <laughs> nice. Um, that's very funny. Very, it's it's very on funny. par with when with the mornings when like I'm like ah shit my bike's got a flat tire. Guess I'll drive the muscle car. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that that's that's me, Brian. What have you been up to? Um, kind of a lot more than I, I wish I was doing. So I, I talked before about my Sabaru, how I thought the turbo was going out. You know, there's a little bit of play in the bearings and stuff. So on uh, Thursday, I went down to a place in, in the Denver suburbs that like, you know, gets old Subarus and breaks them apart and sells them for parts and got a replacement turbo. And when I was picking it up, I'm like, checked it over and i'm like you know it's got a little bit of play in the bearings side to side and he's like oh yeah they're all gonna have that it's what it's the end-to-end play that you want to worry about and i'm like okay um you probably know more than i do so i'm just gonna trust you on this (laughs) um and then zach uh offered to help me or i should say i asked and and he's like yeah sure I'll, i'll come over and help you for a little bit on uh you know swapping the turbo out So uh, we were doing that yesterday, and we got the old turbo off, and I'm like, this has just as much play in the bearings as the new one. So either, there's a few scenarios of what happened. Either one, I got ripped off, two, there's some other problem with the car. Or he was telling the truth and saying, they're all going to have that. Yeah, or, or they're all just fucked, and I should have gotten like a rebuilt turbo or something. I don't know. But well, so, so I know you had you were having issues with the turbo. I, I I don't. Again, I'm not a turbo guy. Yeah, I'd like to be someday, but they, that seems really complicated. Do you, have you identified that like the that particular kind of play was actually causing your issue, or was it just more indicative of you're having turbo issues? You noticed some play. Figured you should probably just replace it yeah i mean that was kind of the my logic is like the problems i was having was it would either not reach full boost or it would like uh knock a little bit when it's getting up in boost there's a what would knock so it has a uh, knock indicator called fine knock learning and that's basically like if there's any knock events it'll um adjust the the timing or the fuel to um you know changes the timing a few degrees to account for that in the in the you know, fuel spark yeah. map or whatever. And I don't know exactly what it's the number that it's giving what me what it, that's measuring. Maybe it's degrees of timing or whatever. But when I first got my intake manifold put back on and everything was running great, I was maybe it was either zero or like one. And now if I get on full boost, it's like three. I don't know what that was indicating exactly, but it seemed to be getting worse. 
So it could, so it could be th- like three degrees of correction. Right. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing, I don't know if the, I don't. I can't imagine like play in in the turbine or whatever, and the bearings would cause it wouldn't cause you to overboost so much that you would have knocking issues. I would think my, that's ass- my assumption would be that you would have less boost because there's more resistance if yes. the bearings were. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would think. No, no, it was having less boost. So you shouldn't have you shouldn't have more knock as a consequence of having less. Right. Boost. Yeah, I don't know. Theoretically, again, cars do weird shit. So yeah. <laughs> I don't. But I to me that seems like kind of not what I would expect. Whereas, so maybe that's not what it means. Maybe that that sensor is some other shit. I don't know. The other thing I was getting was um, more turbo noise. And so I thought, you know, that's the, you know, it's rubbing on the bearings, so it's making more spooly noises. Yeah. The other theory I have is, so, like, when we took the downpipe off the back of the turbo, all the bolts that holding it on were pretty loose. Like, not, you know, more than finger tight, but not torqued down 100%. And, hmm. you know, another theory is that maybe that rattled loose and there was a little bit of an exhaust leak. And that, that could, be. could have been okay. throwing off the O2 sensor and just making more noise. But well, the other thing, did you did you end up actually changing the turbo or no? I did end up changing it. Um, I haven't driven the car because I still need to button up a few other things. I'm going to do like an oil change and change the transmission fluid and a couple other things. And then... Excuse my ignorance, because um, I don't know when... Like when you buy a new uh, a used turbo, does it come with like a new solen- wastegate solenoid and all that shit? Or... Uh, no, because I'm wondering, like, if your wastegate solenoid was having an issue or was sticking a little bit, uh-huh. and then maybe that was co- causing like an overboost condition because that's old and fucked up, could that be maybe the cause of why it's having to pull some timing? Um, I don't think so. I replaced it's it's got a new wastegate solenoid as of like two years ago or something. Oh, okay. So, well, probably not that then. Yeah. <laughs> the the actual wastegate actuator though, I just kept on the turbo it's i'm not changing yeah it. no that's what i would that's what i would think you did so yeah yeah i wasn't sure if it came with it or not you know the fuck is a turbo <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i don't know i'll uh, i'll put it together tonight and see uh where it's at and then i don't know where i'll go from here if it's not working properly maybe i'll just fucking stomp on it until it knocks a whole bunch and blows up the motor and get a new motor or get a new car i don't know I'm kind of frustrated right now. I mean, I've heard Zach talk about how easy a Subaru motor swap is, and he lives close to you, so just make it. Yeah, fun. yeah, that's kind of. <laughs> that's true. You could say like Zach, you've been talking. You could guilt him into it. Maybe he'll probably never listen to this. But be like Zach, you were saying this was really easy. You could probably just pop over for like 20 minutes and help me replace this engine real quick, right? And then be like, you've said it on our podcast so many times. I assume that this is really easy, and you can help yeah. me. That's what I would do. That's, if I had a friend like that, that's what I would do. Well, and I can get a new, or I mean, I, I can get a lightly used engine from Japan for like, I don't know, 1500 bucks or something like that. So You know what we should do as a future episode, which we'll probably never get around to doing because we never do when we make these suggestions? We should look into, why is it that there's all these engines from Japan that have like n- suspiciously low mileage? And is that accurate? So... I feel like that would be a fun episode to do. The short version of, or at least what I've heard, is that Japan has a lot of like laws that are to protect the domestic car manufacturing business there. And part of that is basically 
it gets a lot more expensive to register your car and insure it if it's older. So people will buy like a brand new car like every three years there or something like that. And so you only get, whoa, they only get to like 60,000 miles or, or 100 kilometers or whatever that is. That's why I was like, why are they all like 50,000 miles? Yeah. Like that doesn't, that, someone's lying here, but huh, okay. I feel like this has to be an episode yeah. at some point because that is fucking bonkers I, and very cool <laughs> and weird and also uh, so very weird. But I mean, there's enough market to export all those used cars around the world to... Clearly. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay. Hey, I'd like to believe that they're all 40,000, 50,000 mile motors too. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if I, I'd be looking for an excuse to to say that wasn't the case. Yeah. I'm just the asshole who pulls a transmission or engine out of a junkyard with unknown miles, and I'm like, hell yeah, this is fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I mean, I mean, I guess I could go and buy another used TDO4 off of Facebook or eBay or whatever, uh, but I think what I'm going to do is take the old one that was in there and, and rebuild it. Or just I like that. Or just upgrade the turbo eventually, but I don't know if I really want to do that. And, you know, I've said that before. Sounds like more trouble than it's worth for for me at least. Bigger turbo. <laughs> yeah, build build your shit motor. I, I I'm a big I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, that's all I've been up to. Uh, Connor, what have you been doing? Pretty much nothing. Yeah. Pretty much nothing. Um, I'm gonna have a couple things to say, but I'm gonna try and keep this kind of quick. I have been doing very very little on the car. In fact, it's we're recording this. It's what? Oh God, I don't know what the fuck. Mid December, the seventeenth. So we're recording on December 17th. I still do not even have my snow tires on. No. <laughs> so I've just been kind of, yeah, I've just been living dangerously like, fuck it. Now, part of me is just like, I would like to hit another drift event because they're running them on Sundays. And I'm like, you know, we'll see. Um, but I just haven't gotten around to changing the uh, wheels over yet. Now, there's a lot less of a rush on doing that for me because I'm in a position where I don't need the car I'm not super desperate to have a car for a little while because I'm going to have a couple weeks off of work in the next week because I quit my first my, my job and I got a much better job. But I also don't start that job for a couple you know weeks after my f- current one ends. So I'm going to have some time that I can change the wheels over. And I suppose also if I'm if I don't need the car for a couple weeks, that's probably a pretty good time to go ahead and test fit that racing seat and see if I can actually live with that thing without a removable steering wheel. Um, so that way I can either like, I don't know, fucking sell it and get something a little bit more reasonable, but still better than stock or whatever. Since that's just a project where it's like, I don't want to take shit apart, especially knowing that I could run into some issues with that, which long story short, I have a concern for one of the bolts with a bracket on the bottom side of a part of the car I can't get to. It's a pain in the ass. Anyway, point being, it makes sense, especially with my seat rails having to be kind of sort of custom fit and all that shit. I, it, w- it would be nice to have some time to do all that, and uh, I'm going to have some of that. So, finally got a new, better job, um, and uh, my old boss can suck it. Uh, I didn't give them a full two weeks notice. And that's part of the reason that I have more time to enjoy to myself. So if you're a listener and you're always giving your two weeks notice, just saying, if you give a week notice or a week and a half and say, oh, they want me to start. Sorry, nothing I can do. Um, you can get some more time for yourself. 
um, which is nice every once in a while. But like I said, last time I gave a two week notice, uh, I gave a two week notice, and then my boss pissed me off and I quit early anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so point being, I'm gonna have some time to switch over the wheels, and you know, I'm probably not gonna get too crazy, but I, I I'm gonna go ahead and fuck around with that you know that racing seat and see if i can get that working and if that's going to be manageable or not um and so outside of that i don't really have too many plans i haven't really been working on the car because i haven't needed to and i'm going to be real that's nice i don't like working on my car um i mean i do it and i like doing upgrades i don't like doing work myself um because i'm a baby and i don't like it it's not fun for me i you know get mad constantly i'm always frustrated so anyway it's been nice not having to do much i will probably do some basic maintenance plus this shit while i'm having some free time so that's pretty much all it for the z and i still haven't made any phone calls for dealing with my other piece of shit car the camaro i said i was going to do it i said by the next time i record i'm definitely going to have done this and i didn't do it i procrastinated and also kept forgetting every single day to do the thing that I was supposed to do so you know part of that was because I was looking for a new job and doing interviews and all that shit it takes a lot out of you but also it's just because um, that's who I am as a person I forget stuff constantly every single day I forget to do the same goddamn task Uh, and then some days I just didn't want to do the task even when I remembered and I was like uh, you know, I remembered, but like it's two thirty, and that's like kind of late, actually. Like, I'm pretty sure they close at five, and <laughs> to be calling them at two thirty just seems like a thing that I don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had that a few times too. So anyway, point being, that's where I'm at right now. I haven't done too much work. There's really not much to say besides I've got to put winter tires on eventually because. I mean, it's been a warm winter so far, um, and no no real snow, so thanks global warming, I can, uh, you know, hold off on my uh, winter tires for a little bit, but uh, that and the racing scene, that's pretty much all I got going. Global warming means that now I just get to run radial TAs all year round, which is what I've always done, but it's going to get safer and safer <laughs> every year. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be, well, again... It's not all exclusively bad stuff. Sometimes there's some perks, and not having to run your winter tires as much is, is great, or being safer on the roads is great. Wait, wait perks like perk 30s? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's all I got, you know. So not too much from, from my end. I've been busy, and, uh, you know, I'll get around to doing some stuff while I'm not working, which I will probably actually not get very much done, if I'm being honest. I will probably just chill out play video games and uh, watch tv mostly yeah so we'll see how far i actually get in reality (laughs) i don't know how anyone gets anything done when the sun goes down at like five o'clock oh i know yeah yeah i i feel you know if you if the sun goes down at five o'clock for you i kind of envy you here it's by 4 p.m it's gone oh yeah no i i uh four or five doesn't really fucking matter i get out of work and it's dark so yeah yeah yeah, I'm, uh, if if I go in early and leave at four, I might have, you know, it, I might be able to drive home at, at dusk. But like, I'm not getting anything done. Yeah, I'm kind of at vampire hours. Like, I see the sun when I go to work, but that's that's about it. Um, we well, have a lot of space at work. I've been really tempted to be like, hey, ma- boss, can I like swap my engine here? <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's a dangerous proposition. I. 
you don't know my boss. I think he would want to help. <laughs> <laughs> it's either going to be a hard no or a hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to be talking about Antarctica and the various vehicles that were used to explore the continent. A little bit of background. Before the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 was signed, it was kind of a Wild West land grab kind of thing. And all these countries were building, you know, bases and exploring different parts and claiming it as their own and whatnot. So it was like colonization if no people were there. Yeah, it was actual terra nullius. I think that's I think that's actually just migration. Yeah, it was. I don't know setting up bases and stuff. That's not migration. They were, they were just like I own this land, and there luckily were not people there to be, uh, you know, colonized in that process. I mean, I think the goal was like to use it as a military base, basically. I accept that no one has ever said, let's build an Antarctic base, and it had like good intentions. I've, I've seen the movie The Thing. <laughs> I know what's going on down there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's various expeditions with sled dogs and whatnot. The first that brought a car was in 1909. It was uh, Ernest Shackleton's expedition. The car didn't run very well uh, because, you know, it's too cold and it didn't have a whole lot of traction. So 1909. Yeah. Cars in <laughs> 1909 weren't the greatest. So they uh, they abandoned that and just stuck to the dog sleds. I'm surprised they tried it at all, to be honest. So they, like, brought over this fucking rinky-dink-ass little car, like, this'll work. We'll be able to travel there. And it's just like, there's no roads, man. Right. What are you thinking? Like, Even beyond that, I'm so curious, dude. Like, it's 1909. That was running a carburetor. That was not fuel-injected. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Would it even start? You know, the, I didn't... During some times of the year. I couldn't find a lot about it, but um, just sort of a teaser on some of the later expeditions... Uh, they would sometimes have to light fires under the engines to get them hot enough to actually start. <laughs> I'm I'm not asking this sarcastically. Like, do they even run a radiator? Uh, they would usually block it off or bypass it or whatever. Or they would, yeah. um, for some of the later vehicles, they would basically be using all of that heat just to heat the cabin. So they'd have, you know, basically a radiator inside like, the cabin. I, I could see running coolant like passages with coolant through them just for evenness of heating but uh -huh. like not an actual radiator yeah dude even even in big trucks connor probably knows this if you're in super cold weather if you're far up north you block off the radiator so it's pulling minimal air through yeah oh yeah i had to do that yeah i had to do that because it was like uh this heat is not cold i am fucked if i like cannot get this thing to warm up so yeah uh there's more of a problem with diesels than than anything else i think yeah but you know, I'm actually curious if you found this in your notes. Did they like make like a real effort to like make this car work or were they just like they got it there and it was like, oh, fuck, this is not going to work. Or did they like try every possible thing to make this thing work? <laughs> I think it was more of between a publicity stunt and it like an experiment to see, mm. you know, can we get this thing to work? I didn't look into it in too much depth, to be honest, to see this 1909 attempt. But, I mean, I mean, I could understand a million reasons why it failed. Yeah. So. so, like, in the subsequent years, there were various cars and tractors and uh, off-road vehicles that were uh, used in the Antarctic. But in 1937, in Chicago, so a little local connection to you, uh, Connor, the guy named uh, Thomas Poulter 
started designing what he called the Antarctic Snow Cruiser. This is at the Armour Institute of Technology, which is now called the Illinois Institute of Technology. It's a private research yep. college. Yeah, it's a, it's a college that I considered going to oh, okay. at some point. <laughs> and uh, he was designing this for the 1939, uh, I think, uh, Bird Expedition. I forget. Uh, I think it was Richard Bird. This was a joint venture between the U.S. Departments of State, War, Navy, and the Interior. Ooh, that's probably probably evil stuff then. <laughs> yeah. And the Armor Institute put up $150,000 to build this off-road uh, machine that Thomas Poulter designed. So that's around $3.3 million in today's money. Wait, so hold on. So somebody was like... They already designed it, and then they're like, we'll give a bunch of money to anyone who can build the shit that we already designed? Well, it was, he was working with this institute. He was uh, at this college, and he had designed this machine, and then this expedition was announced, and he's like, oh, you can all use my design, and got funding for it. Okay. So it was kind of like a private-public partnership kind of thing between gotcha. the college and the government to fund this. Okay. Um, but that meant he only had around 11 weeks to actually build it and get it to the ship to send it out to Antarctica. No problem. Hmm. Notably, yeah, no, notably not enough. Yeah. This was also during the summertime was when it was going to be finished and shipped down there. So they didn't have a, a chance to test it in the snow. <laughs> hmm. But Could be an issue. I don't see how that's relevant to an Arctic vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> so... His concept was he wanted to make sort of an all-in-one contained um, vehicle slash Habitat. living situation. Yeah. Well, you're not far off because they were going to haul a biplane on top of it. So they didn't have helicopters so much in 1937, but they did have biplanes. So they had this plane on skis that would take off and land, and then they would haul it up a ramp onto the back of the vehicle and tow it around when they're not flying it. Wait, so you're telling me this plane's by? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i can't help but wonder if like tying a fucking rope to it, it's already on skis and just pulling it around maybe would have been easier than putting it on top yeah i, I know, mean I that's extra friction i suppose but this is one of those things that looks really cool on the cover of um you know popular mechanics but uh as we'll see it didn't end up so good so he got four gigantic tires from goodyear and they're uh, 10 foot diameter balloon tires and the Whoa, 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 hold on. We got to stop there. Yeah. 10 foot diameter tires? Yeah. So they're. Are you sure? Yeah. Why? 10. How did it turn them? Like, that's a lot. <laughs> that takes a lot to turn that. This is 1937. Well, they had the whole to turn around. Yeah. It actually had a decent turning circle of 33 feet because the front and the rear could steer independently. So you could do. Four wheel yeah, steering. no bullshit. That's that's almost certainly less than the turning radius of my fucking drift car, but, <laughs> uh, which is a problem for the drift car as well. But yeah, uh, no, I mean like to turn like a ten foot diameter fucking wheel mm. is takes a lot of effort. It's not like turning some fucking eighteen inch wheels. Like that's yeah, that is an unfathomable. About- Connor is asking if this has power steering. No, no, not at all. Uh, yeah, no, it has elect- uh, hydraulic steering. It has hydraulic steering and hydraulic uh, uh, suspension, so it can raise and lower on the suspension. Right? How much can it lower enough for you to get in? Because that seems like you need a ladder to get in this thing. Um, well, it's like fifteen feet tall. The whole thing. 
So this is a gigantic, it's like the size of a bus. It's 55 feet long, I believe. 55 feet long, 20 feet wide, 75,000 pounds. Okay, wow. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm stupid. I was like thinking that this was like, oh, this is the little car we're talking about with like just bigger tires. And I'm like, no, 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 we're talking about a totally different vehicle. <laughs> yeah, My no, bad. this That's is like, stupid. this is like a camper bus kind of thing. And the idea was okay. that they would all live inside of it as they drive to the South Pole. And so it had, you know, bunk beds and a stove and a toilet and everything on the inside. It says it had a machine shop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was just like a drill press and like a workbench, but it had a machine shop, yeah. So it the tires had no tread on them. And some sources will say that this is because they were worried about snow and ice sticking to the tires and, you know, getting crusted on there. And some of it... Some other sources just say that's what they could get at the time from Goodyear, and that's what was available. And That sounds like they found what they could get and then came up with a justification for why it would work. I think you're right, yes. yeah. Um, and then each wheel had its own electric motor, and it was sort of a hybrid electric with two Cummins diesel engines powering the generators. So kind of like how modern locomotives work. And it had a combined 300 horsepower. Yeah, but in two diesel motors from, like, back then, making 300 horsepower, that's, like, 14,000 pounds of torque. Oh, yeah. Well, and, I mean, whatever that is with electric motors, too. I don't know what kind of torque they were making. Oh, right, right. And it could reach a top speed of 30 miles an hour. Oh, that's pretty quick. So they had, you know, an insulated cab with living quarters for up to five people. They had a small galley slash dark room and a machine shop, and then they had a sort of a tapered tail section where they uh, kept two spare tires. It could carry 2,500 U.S. gallons of fuel with another uh, 1,000 gallons uh, for the airplane. So this... Uh, I would drive that to work. <laughs> yeah. So this was built at the uh, the Pullman Company near Chicago, and then they uh, decided to drive it all the way to uh, Boston Harbor to ship it out to Antarctica. So it went like around 1,000 miles overland. And along the way in Ohio, it uh, fell off a bridge and got stuck in a small creek, which was not a good sign. No. No, it was not. (laughs) How is it a bad sign? It's not meant for driving over creeks. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it arrived in Antarctica on January 12th, 1940. And while they were unloading it, it uh, broke the wooden ramp that they had there on the side of the ship. That seems like a bad sign. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they did uh they also tested it on sand dunes in indiana before they shipped it out and it did okay with that but uh sand is not the same as snow how so <laughs> um i mean sand is is difficult yeah just in generally a kind of different way but yeah. yes so in actual snow and ice uh they were lacking traction um they even put like chains on the tires that didn't really help that much they also took the two spare tires out the back and put it on the front wheels like dually tires, kind of, to get a little bit more traction. That also didn't really work. And then the, 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 they did figure out that they got better traction going in reverse for whatever reason. So they would just drive it around in reverse the whole time. But this, <laughs> uh, they, I think they could only go like maybe 12 miles an hour at most. And, um, you know, this wasn't very practical. They didn't get very far with it. The farthest trip they went was 92 miles, which, you know, the, I think it's like 
3,000 miles from the coast to uh, the South Pole. So um, they were a little short of that. Okay, um, but they drove it from Chicago to Boston and then took it to Antarctica and drove it another 100 miles. That is literally more than I've driven my car so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to dismiss this thing completely. Like, valiant effort, whoever yeah. did this. To be honest, it actually seems like on everything about it was just fine. It's just that they they had tires that had no fucking tread on them. Yeah. That seems like entirely the issue and and I almost wonder I'm like, well, could Goodyear one have made like 8 foot diameter tires with tread cuz I feel <laughs> like that would have worked a lot better. <laughs> just Yeah. I don't know if they had to be 10 feet. That that is a pretty tall order. So easy to criticize when you're not the one doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's true. I'm also I, like legitimately not going to be overly critical of a thing that they had eleven weeks to build. Yeah. So like basically at this point they abandoned using it as a vehicle and they just parked it and used it as a cabin to live in, which it works pretty well for that. And... It's the escalator of vehicles. It just it can't break. It just becomes a different <laughs> thing. Yeah. Um. And uh, so they did some uh, cosmic ray measurements, ice core sampling, seismographic uh, experiments. Um, but then in 1941, the expedition was uh, recalled. You know, all the funding was cut because uh, World War II. And uh, it was left in the Antarctic on the ice shelf with a big bam- bamboo pole sticking up the top of it so that it could find it again when it got buried by the snow, which... Well, that was smart. I, w- I would not have I would not have been smart enough to do that. So I can yeah. certainly give credit there. I would not I would have not done that. Yeah. Well, so there was uh, other expeditions that arrived in 1946 and 1958, and they were able to find it. You know, they were able to dig it out, and um, I don't know if they used it for anything, but um, at least they found it. Then it was lost again and buried under the snow, and. Probably what happened was the glacier that it was on went out to sea, turned into icebergs, and it fell down into the ocean. No, it's it's floating so. somewhere in the ocean on 10-foot balloon tires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably easy to miss with the, uh, you know, garbage patch the size of France, so... Right. Well, and there was a... I think it was in 1963, a uh, U.S. Navy ship was down there. And saw an iceberg with basically like, you know, the iceberg had broken off the ice shelf and like on the cliff on the edge of the iceberg, there was like half of a um, cabin buried in the snow that they think was from this expedition. So it was probably on that iceberg in 1963. If not, then it's probably in the ocean by now. So... To contrast, we're going to fast forward a little bit and look at the Soviet Union's uh, efforts. I'm really hoping they were better, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's where the story is going. Oh, no, they were. <laughs> the first Soviet base was established in 1956, and this was gearing up for the International Geophysical Year of 1957. And this was sort of an international... The what? The, um, the what the geophysical what is what the fuck is they talking about what is this so this was an international effort to learn about geophysics in antarctica more specifically and there was all these different countries going to antarctica to work together and part of what came out of this was the treaty of 1959 where they were saying no military bases are allowed it's only scientific awesome 
Yeah. Very cool. Okay, cool. But the Soviets had some catching up to do. They first arrived with modified tractors and tanks and other military transports that they you know, worked, they got traction in the snow, they were able to drive around, but it was... Now, is it true that they eliminated all the emperor penguins in favor of more egalitarian <laughs> penguins? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lined them up all in the basement and shot them. <laughs> yeah, I too was trying to think of a Romanov's joke, and I just couldn't get there. Um, the basement... Listeners, just, you know, yeah. do the joke in your head. You got it. Yeah. So the problem with these vehicles was they weren't insulated very well, and people were cold in the cabs. What, what, what was the assumption that they were Russian, so they were used to it? Like these, <laughs> these are the people who should know how to make it warm. Uh, I'm going to be honest; that does seem like a fair assumption, actually. That they sh- probably would be more used to it than than you know I would for sure. I mean, with their regular winter jacket, should be enough to hold up to it, right? I mean, I, I have I, I'm stupid, by the way. I. I actually don't know how cold Antarctica is compared to like Russia. So, which is fucking cold. I... <laughs> the the lowest number I saw uh, that they encountered was negative ninety two Fahrenheit. That's too much. Yeah, that is entirely too much. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna say some psycho shit right now. One time where I live, it got to negative twenty five, and I took a recreational walk because I was curious what that felt like. Yeah, and if I can do that in negative twenty five. The Russians can figure out how to combat negative whatever else it was. Yeah. But my beard did. My beard froze over. I mean, they figured it out. Oh, I hate walking the dog in the winter because my entire mustache is fucking like icicles that hang over my mouth. It's really unpleasant. And they kind of hurt if you pull on them. Yeah, no, my mustache fully froze to my beard and it it literally looked like just icicles. So one of the... The first vehicles they used uh, was called the ATT, uh, which in Russian... Oh, from Star Wars. Yeah. (laughs) In Russian, it stands for Heavy Artillery Tractor. And this was basically a T-55 tank chassis with truck body on top of it. I want that. So, yeah. (laughs) Let me... uh, It looks pretty fucking sweet, I gotta say. And because of the air, I'm sure it was like a Model T truck that was, was plopped down on this tank chassis. It was it was like a 1940s 1950s style Soviet heavy truck uh, cab. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's actually really cool. Yeah. Okay, I, I like this. This is this is cool. And so, like, they got rid of all the heavy armor stuff and basically just had. They also moved the engine to the front, whereas on the tank it's in the rear. Yeah, I would drive this to work. <laughs> yeah. So these were built in a factory in Kharkov, Ukraine. Again, uh, apologies if I'm uh, mispronouncing that. They uh, and they weighed 25 tons each and i don't know what their like tow rating was or anything but it was a lot they were basically built to haul around like um you know howitzers and pull tanks out of ditches and stuff like that and in this uh negative 92 fahrenheit weather the diesel fuel would freeze solid i bet you could you could cut it with a hacksaw like that solid (laughs) oh my god i'm I'm Um, hearing about diesel fuel gelling up but i've never actually heard about it freezing solid yeah yep (laughs) Oh, man. Um, So they would have to light fires under the fuel tanks and the engines to thaw it out. Uh, That seems... I wouldn't want to be the person lighting fire under the the gas tank. I feel like I'd be like, guys, I don't know if this is smart. (laughs) They're Russian. They were too drunk to care. (laughs) You know, I don't know how much they were actually drinking out there, but uh, there was a British guy who was 
um, involved in one of these, um, I think in 1957 in the geophysical year. And he called his memoir uh, Vodka on Ice. So I'm thinking there was at least some drinking there. I mean, I figure their water probably all froze, so they were just stuck with, like, vodka, which wouldn't freeze until much, much lower temperatures. My my assumption is that them being Russian, they were drinking constantly and never drunk. (laughs) Yeah. A nice pint of vodka for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) So in this expedition, uh, when they were establishing the Vostok base, which is sort of halfway in between uh, the coast and the South Pole, they were getting up to uh, 9,800 feet uh, in elevation. Oh, wow. And the engines were struggling a little bit because of the, uh, you know, no air. thin air. Yeah. Wait, what, what was what was that uh, elevation? 9, you said uh, nine thousand eight hundred feet. Yeah, that'll that'll make it hard. And so this was, uh, I, th- I think, that was on the second expedition that they were doing that. And so the third expedition, they also um, they upgraded these ATTs with wider tracks. I think they got up to forty inches wide, and then they. Uh, fitted turbocharged uh, diesel engines yeah. for the higher Hell attempt. Hell yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, this feels like a meme where, where it's like you just show a tank with 40-inch wide treads and dudes will just be like, Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the fourth expedition, they uh, tapped the uh, Kharkov Transportation Engineering Plant to build the chassis and the Kharkov Aviation Plant to make lightweight insulated bodies out of aluminum. Kharkiv. Kharkiv, or sometimes as Kharkiv, Kharkiv. And they gave them three months. So similar time frame to the American uh, snow cruiser. The ATT chassis was lengthened by about 30 feet. And then they had the 40-inch the wide treads on there. Now they had a twin-turbo V12 diesel engine that made an, uh, 900 horsepower. Fuck yeah. And they also upgraded to a five-speed manual transmission. <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is sounding like my nine hundred horsepower five speed tricks, but like they're exploring the Arctic with it. That's hell yeah, yeah. And I might have misspoke. It's uh, they lengthened it up to uh, thirty feet long. It wasn't thirty feet longer than before. Oh, oh yes, that that is much clearer. Oh, okay. I was just like hell. That's that's quite the uh... <laughs> yeah. It seems excessive. Yeah. yeah. So the body had two layers of aluminum with uh, eight layers of nylon insulation in between. Fucking smart. And then the engine was accessible from inside the cab. So you could just like pull off basically a doghouse like on a van and access the engine. Speaking to my heart right now. <laughs> yeah, this is this is starting to look pretty good. This is I'm starting to feel like this is this is trending towards success at this point. Well, it probably would have gone smoother, but somebody got rid of all of the insulation to smuggle blue jeans. <laughs> and the idea also with the engine sort of almost in the cab was to get a little bit more heat in the in the cab. Oh, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And these were a little heavier. They were 35 tons instead of 25. Uh, but again, they had the upgraded engine. They were officially called the 404S, but in s- slang, they were called the... Kharkov Chanka, which means a woman from Kharkov. Wait, so they so in in Russian, Chanka like ch- chunky means woman. C H A N K. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm hearing chunky, and I'm moving to Russia. <laughs> I, it might be Ukrainian. I'm not sure on the not moving uh, to Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, well, especially because Kharkov is like one of the places that they were fighting over recently. Oh, so I'm guessing this was meant to 
pejoratively. No, I think it was affectionate. Gotcha. No, I think this was a, this is, you know. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a Our Lady Ukraine thing. Yeah. Almost like uh, Karkov Chanko, like, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I, I could see the reverence in that name. Okay, fair enough. So they had uh, sleeping accommodations for up to eight people, if you wanted to, like, sleep on top of the engine, that is. In the Arctic, that sounds like the place to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it had a, a little plastic dome on the top so you could poke your head up and look at the stars for navigation. Because 60s hot rod shit, I love that. Yeah. Because remember, this is before GPS. There's no like radio navigation in Antarctica. You just get out a whatever, what's it called, a sextant or whatever, and look at the stars, basically. I was going to jokingly ask if that was how they navigated. Yeah. Yeah, for real. That makes sense. That um, shit. Yeah, and also you're pretty close to the um, magnetic South Pole, so I don't know how well a compass works down there. Um, These are all things I've never considered. That's so cool. Yeah. The front windshield uh, had double-pane windows with heating elements in between to melt the ice, and then it also had interior walls that were insulated so that the middle room was the bedroom, so you could you know keep the two outside rooms uh, colder. And it was uh, 323 square feet, so... Uh, larger than some Soviet apartments, but a little bit cramped for eight people. It uh, had a top speed of 35 miles an hour, but would cruise more at like 20. Uh, they said it could climb a 30 degree slope, which I wonder if that's 30%. It might have been a typo in the source that I had. Uh, and it could tow 60 tons and had a 20 ton winch on the front well so you mean like a 30 percent grade or whatever instead of a 30 degree yeah i'm not sure which it is i mean to me either one is very impressive yeah pick the worst of those two and that's still nothing to scoff at (laughs) yeah uh fuel cap fuel capacity was 660 gallons uh, which gave it a range of uh 930 miles not great fuel economy gonna not gonna give an a for that so um, they they built the first three in only three months and shipped them out to Antarctica. Wait, they built oh, three? Oh, they built several of yeah. these. Okay, wow. God damn, central planning <laughs> apparently for the win here. And the first uh, shakedown trip was uh, 3,100 miles from the coast to the geographic South Pole. God yeah. damn. Okay. Wait, so... Uh, not what is the time around. difference between the balloon tire vehicle and the chunky lady of, of Ukraine? The balloon tire vehicle was in uh, 1939, 1940, I think ended in 1941. And then um, this uh, Karkov Chanka was in, I think... Our Lady of Chunk, yes. Was uh, 1959, uh, and I think... Okay, so this wasn't purely Soviet ingenuity. Like, we had two decades of, of engineering evolution here. yeah. And they also, I mean, they took some lessons from the snow cruiser as far as, like, how to insulate and outfit the cabin. But they're like, yeah, we're not fucking around with this dumb balloon tire bullshit. We're going to put tank treads on this. Rightfully so. Um, let's see. So so on their way to the South Pole, it was through uh, totally uncharted territory for most of it. They hadn't even had airplanes fly over this land, so they had no idea what to expect. Here's an excerpt from a book by A.G. Drocklin who was the leader of the trip. His book is called Antarctica. Simple enough. And I'm just going to... I'm going to talk in freedom units rather than uh, metric here. (laughs) By 540 miles into the trip, 160 track pins were broken. And so those are the the pins that hold the segments of the the track together. 
I wonder why those were breaking. So one, it was cold and it, they were getting brittle. And then also just they, I think they just underestimated how much stress they would be in, like towing these big uh, sleds through the snow. Uh, or at, least, at the very least underestimated the amount of stress they would be under given how brittle it was going to be in those temperatures. Exactly. The main engine worked well, but there was poor oil cooling. Uh, so I don't know how you have poor oil oil cooling when it's, uh, you know, negative 92 out, but uh, okay. they managed to do that. I can only speculate that, one, this engine ran at 475 degrees in normal weather, or, and this is the serious option, when you have an engine that is largely insulated by the cabin on multiple sides, you're, there's not going to be a lot of airflow. Yeah. And I'm speaking from firsthand experience. Like, my early vans are sort of a similar design. It's really hard to get airflow through them because of the way the engine sits. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've overheated in the cold before. I, I, I overheated a motor to the point where it blew up when it was in the high teens. Yeah. Bad mm-hmm. bad airflow really like uh does a world of hurt even in the cold. Yeah. So he was saying the oil temperature was like 200 Fahrenheit over the norm of what it should be. <laughs> I mean, diesels um, have pretty high oil temperatures to begin with, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. You know. I, I think you're right. I, yeah, I don't know uh, that. I'm I'm genuinely asking. I'm not a uh, diesel guy. I don't know either. So with the with, with it parked and the heaters turned off, the temperature of the living compartment uh, decreased from 95 Fahrenheit down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit by morning. So it was 95 whoa. in so there? that insulation. So yeah, with the heaters running, they could get it up to 95, but then once they turn that off, it goes down pretty quick. It should have just routed the oil lines through the cabin. It would have solved two problems. Well, I think they fixed a lot of this on the second iteration, but this was rough draft kind of thing also i feel like you skipped the uh to me the biggest yeah. shortcoming and that's kind of a joke but the biggest shortcoming being the average speed they were going not great. uh i forgot what it was like so it says right here the average speed was in the range of 2.6 to 3.7 miles per hour yeah which is not super great uh, to be fair they were probably over pretty aggressive terrain but yeah you know that's yeah. slow I feel like I'd be pulling my hair out. <laughs> like, can you imagine looking out the window and just seeing a field of white and you're going two and a half miles an hour through it? Have you ever walked three miles, two or three miles, and then hiked two or three miles and thought about the difference? Yeah. It's it's not comparable. Like, a two or three mile walk is, is easy and casual, and a two or three mile hike is something. So if if you're steadily That's maintaining true. three miles an hour through the fucking Arctic in a tank, that actually does not seem bad to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Um, also, I feel like the joke that uh, Connor missed but was a Connor joke is that you're saying they improve all of this on the second iteration, but how could they have improved on it without the profit motive? <laughs> yeah, they weren't incentivized to do that. That's true. I, I forgot to put my libertarian hat on. I, I've been arguing with libertarians on on twitter so i should be able to do it <laughs> easily enough but now see that's the exact thing is that the only way to argue with libertarians is to turn your brain off so you're just yeah not used to even thinking have a couple more drinks and then yeah. you'll be <laughs> in prime shape <laughs> um and then you find so, out that your booze was made by libertarians so it just has methanol in your blind now <laughs> yeah <laughs> no no regulation man so uh the Fuel consumption was around 3.5 to 4.5 gallons per mile. They also, because the engine was sort of in the cab, 
that would leak a little bit and they'd get diesel exhaust in the cabin. So they get like soot all over them and stuff. Oh yeah, that sounds gross. That sounds awful. Yeah. I bet they slept so good though. <laughs> yeah. Well, they also had to leave the engines idling a lot more because you know it would cool off at night. Like they slept really uh, good. They just didn't choose when they would fall asleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were also you know because of the the pins breaking on the tracks, they cut down the the track extensions from uh, forty inches to thirty inches. To you know, maybe not have as much traction, not put as much stress on the tracks, and it was basically the the extensions were just angle iron welded to the treads, so it was they just got out a torch and cut those off. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay. One of the vehicles uh, broke its transmission, and they had to swap it out in the field. Been there, done that. Yeah. Uh, when it was negative sixty-seven Fahrenheit. Nope, never done that. <laughs> and it took them five days to do that. But I mean, at least I, they had a spare transmission. I'm intensely curious about that, but fucking good on them that they like blew their transmission in the Arctic, and they're like, "Now nah, we got this." Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, like, I I guess um, at this point I can't help but feel like part of the part of what's going on here is, I guess it would be really hard to support a breakdown, right? Like, there's no one who can come yeah, to help them. So. Pretty much. So I assume they probably had at least one or two spare engines and transmissions as well as other parts to fix whatever. Because otherwise, I mean, maybe they could get a plane to come rescue them if they really needed it. Yeah. But well, I mean, they had they had three know. of the uh, Karkovchankas and they had, I think, another three ATTs along in this expedition. So basically, if any of the vehicles broke down permanently, they'd just all pile into the other ones and be... A little cramped or a little more cold, but, you know, they could have gotten there. Gotcha. I would simply call Summit for a rebuild kit. <laughs> <laughs> so they did eventually make it to the South Pole, uh, where the Americans had a base called uh, Edmondson Scott. And they hung out with the Americans for a few days. They did a couple laps around the South Pole, so they went around the world. And then uh, nice. uh, after three days uh, with the uh, Soviet flag flying there, uh, they packed up and left. And the return journey took 89 days back to the coast. Uh, how much was the initial trip? Uh, I'm not sure. Like, were they taking it easy, or was that them, like, keeping steady pace? I mean, I imagine they went a little quicker on the return just because they're going downhill and they know the path. But I don't know. I, I don't have that in front of me. I mean, I, I've, it, how many thousands of miles is that? And they're they're maintaining an average speed of around three miles an hour? That's... That yeah. makes sense, yeah. And dude, the I imagine the Arctic is a place where even if you go back the path that you came, that doesn't make it quicker or safer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and who knows if they could find their path again, you know, with the snow blowing around and everything. Yeah. Um, I guess I could read this book by the expedition leader if I really wanted to know more. I wonder how awkward it was for the uh, Soviets to hang out with the Americans there. I mean, I suppose they're probably not like military right. people per se so maybe they were probably all pretty cool my, my, it says that they got along but i don't know my guess would be it, it would be like yeah you put a bunch of scientists who like they're like yeah i'm american and the thing that i actually care about is geology and then you get the russian yeah. guy who's like well i'm russian but geology fucking rules and then they broke <laughs> down for three days and you know, right yeah that seems cool you know the things like that do have a tendency to to uh take precedence over your shitty nationality yeah to transcend uh stupid politics and economics and all that i mean at, at the end of the day we are all yeah. people so i mean i haven't i don't know i don't know for sure but i think 
Russians and Americans are still in the International Space Station together right now. Yeah, true. So. Yeah, they are. And I would I know. would put money on the same thing. It's it, they're in space together. They're not worried about like their petty differences. Yeah, they just bond over being ruled by oligarchs. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, let's see. In 1974, they started working on an updated design. They returned to the sort of truck cab design for the front with just a big insulated box for the living quarters in the back. And, uh, you know, this is to get rid of the fumes in the cabin. Also make it easier to get to the engine by just lifting up the hood rather than going in from the inside. Which, I don't know, maybe, Brandon, you can speak to this. Like, how much easier it is to, is it to work on a pickup truck versus, like, a van? with the cab over design really depends on the design but like there are times when it's a world easy okay like imagine that your engine busts and you got to figure out why but you're inside the cab so you just lift the lid and you're tinkering around on the motor you're still in the cab you're reasonably warm you're sheltered from the elements it's kind of nice but also you can't reach any bolts on the side of the motor with any tool you own yeah Um, (laughs) so it's a real mixed bag yeah. Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't want to be in the, you know, negative 70 or 80 degrees uh, to fix some shit. I feel like that would be worse. Like, I'd rather deal with some other headaches that come from a cramped engine bay or, you know, or what have you, um, rather than being outside and like, okay, well, let's, it's negative 90 out. Let's just real quick go and swap this engine or, or fix this shit. I, I feel like I would rather be in the cab where it's. 10 degrees Fahrenheit than negative 80. Yeah, my my thought is simply, if you're building a vehicle for Arctic exploration, why are you, why do you, I could come up with a relatively simple design where it's like cab over engine, but still very accessible. But that, that yeah. being said, um, cab over engine makes engine changes or like, I imagine a transmission swap very difficult because yeah, you know, get, getting everything away from it. I would say engine work is easier when you have like a, a proper like truck design and it's more comfortable in a lot of van designs. Yeah, that makes sense. When my, when my Ford breaks down, I don't get out of the driver's seat to pull the plugs and see what's going on. What's well, a diesel. So you didn't on these, they didn't have any plugs. Well, no, I just like, <laughs> just, right. just as like a half joking example, yeah, yeah. like, um, you know, if I had to swap the engine in my van, it's, it's a fucking headache cause it comes out through the cab. But when it just breaks down, I don't even have to fucking stand up to fix it. Yeah, that's true. Besides all those changes uh, that I mentioned, they also had better insulation in the living quarters. One of the innovations they had was uh, no through bolts. So like no bolts going all the way through all layers of insulation. They would have, you know, one on the inside and one on the outside, not touching each other so that the, yeah, there's no path for the heat to go out through the bolts. Huh. I would, I wouldn't, I would not have ever considered (laughs) that. I would, that's, I wouldn't even think that would make a huge difference, but I guess when you're talking like negative 70 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, that's, yeah, that's probably a thing. They also had a auxiliary generator that would, uh, generate auxiliaries, give them, yeah, yeah, it would provide electricity and heat while the main engine was shut off so they could save, uh, fuel and wear on the main engine. So kind of like oh, I yeah. think a lot of um, semi-trucks that have sleeper cabins have a similar kind of deal. Yep. Or like RVs or whatever. So, and these works pretty well, but in the 1980s, they were working on a third generation design based on the MTT military tractor, uh, but they never built that because of all the financial problems that the Soviet Union had in the 1980s, and uh, it was uh, you know totally abandoned in uh, 
1991. I would rephrase that slightly to say because of all of the financial problems that the U.S. caused the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's a better way of saying that. <laughs> Either way, there was the uh, illegal dissolution of the Soviet Union, and the now the, uh, the the Russian Antarctic mission didn't have access to Kharkov in the Ukraine to build their uh, Kharkovchenkas. So they used uh, another military vehicle called a, a Vityaz DT-30, or I'm skipping ahead. So... Um, Karkovchanka number 22, so this is the first design, the boxy one, was in service up until 2010. And then it was uh, sat for a while, and then in 2015, they restored it with its original Soviet livery and parked it as sort of a monument at Progress Station, the the Russian base there. Hmm. Very cool. I'm surprised it was operational till 2010. Yeah. That's actually really... Um... That's pretty impressive. Now, the the, the last one of the uh, the second design, the 1974 design was in use up until at least 2018. Wow. Yeah. And this is when they replaced them with the uh, Vityas uh, DT, DT-30. Are we actually uh, learning anything from Antarctica? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they're looking at penguins and seals and whatnot. I'm sure they're doing something important, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but you don't have to go to the pole for that. That's the coastal. Like, <laughs> no, no, I'm, 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 that's not being difficult. Like, yeah. Th- those animals do not migrate to the pole. <laughs> I mean, they did mentioned something about like cosmic rays like what with being at the pole with the magnetic field and whatnot you can observe the magnetic field i believe is very different at the pole. i had a friend that i nicknamed cosmic ray plus i mean i'm <laughs> he hated it I, i'm sure i'm sure you can get some interesting ice cores from there too that would tell you a lot of geologic history as well as climate history um, that would probably be pretty... What does ice core sound like? Is that similar to metal core or... <laughs> a little bit okay. less aggressive. And then now the uh, the Russians use a German-built vehicle called a Piston Bully 300, which is kind of like a... How the mighty have fallen. Yeah. It's kind of like a snowcat-looking tractor thing, like what you use for grooming slopes on a ski resort or whatever. But that is uh, the end of my notes on the uh, Karkovchenka. I don't know. What did, what did we learn here? Insulation is your friend in cold weather. Uh, a thing I'm curious about is like, how much do you know about uh, any other Arctic expeditionary like vehicles? Like how, how like we're, we're obviously we're focusing on the Soviet ones. How did they really honestly fare against their contemporaries? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I know the Americans used like. Uh, I don't, actually, I don't know what the Americans used at this time. I kind of went a little narrow focus on this one, so. I didn't look at the other designs. That's that's fine. I was just curious. I mean, there's a lot here just about about the yeah. Soviet designs anyway. I mean, it's just like I I can understand, which you know who knows. It, it's always weird when you compare the U.S. to the Soviet Union, right? Like there's there's a lot of caveats mm-hmm. there, right? Like sometimes you're like, well, who valued what more, right? Yeah, okay. So maybe the Americans put together something better, but it's like, well, were they? you know trying to outpace the soviet union and they just had a bigger economy that could afford those resources maybe um is it a success of central planning is it a success of just their cooperative nature instead of competition you know all these factors with any kind of comparison between the soviet union and the united states or any other capitalist countries it's always like and and i found this just in general as kind of as a you know blanket statement these comparisons are always fraught yeah. with a lot of caveats and, and issues like you compare east germany to west germany and they go oh look how much better west germany was and it's like well 
Yeah, it had the entire Western world pumping foreign money right. into it. Like that's which the and they you know and of course your your opponents might say oh well the Soviet Union did the same to East Germany and that's not really quite also true. like what is your metric for success is it healthcare or is it access to blue jeans yeah 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 exactly and so like I feel like we're always on the defensive of like oh like and we hear this especially like on social media as a communist car podcast we hear oh communists were bad at making cars and it's like well okay were they or did they have different yeah. goals. In some respects, yeah, they, they were not good cars. <laughs> they were not high horsepower, this and that. But, like, in terms of practical vehicles that were cheap, easy to maintain, they were a success. They didn't make enough of them, I think, right? But, like... Wait, you're saying they didn't make a whole lot of them? <laughs> yes, a whole lot of a whole lot of them. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you make these comparisons and you always have to think, like, okay, but what is going on here? The world is complex, like... Who pumped what money into where? You know, what are what are all the material conditions involved in this comparison? And unfortunately, it's I find it pretty rare that any comparison can just stand on its own. Yeah. Um, and I, I I would imagine this is really very similar. It, it's yeah. I mean, it's really hard to make an earnest comparison of the U.S. and the Soviet Union because you know if if you're anti-Soviet Union, then you're probably to a, a degree pro-America. And so you're coming from that bias. And a lot of us who are arguing on behalf of a lot of Soviet stuff are coming from a pretty explicitly pro-Soviet stance. Yeah, I'm going to look for the successes, right? And I'm going to downplay the failures. The same way any Wait. you know, capitalist supporter is going to do. Um, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean failures? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. Temporary setbacks. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting question and probably above my pay grade but like i was just listening you're getting paid for this <laughs> <laughs> wait yeah wait a second uh, we have some questions uh, now. figuratively uh, i guess above the pay grade yeah, of zero. yeah it's above my knowledge i guess but like i was listening to a podcast actually actually existing socialism recently uh which i'll recommend like they were talking more recently about the uh or the episode i was listening to was about comparing the Soviet Union and China and like how each of them succeeded at different things. Like Soviet Union was focused more on like heavy industry. China was like a mostly agrarian nation that then turned to like consumer manufacturing, light manufacturing. So like different approaches politically, economically and all that. And you know how that ended. I've listened to one or two episodes from, from them and I liked what I've heard so far. So, you know, yeah. Assuming they don't have some terrible take, I don't know about you know. Sh- shout out to already existing socialism. Yeah, for sure. I hate I hate when you have to think where it's like, oh yeah, this this like these people seem really cool or whatever, and then it's like, well, then there's some like really awful take where you're like, how did you get this one so fucking wrong? I don't get it. What? Unless yeah. it's especially egregious, I come at it from a stance of you know what, you get two or three. I've yeah. I've I've had some pretty yeah, bad stances I, I, over I the years agree. that I've come around on and. There are a lot yeah. of things that I will now stand by that other people feel like are bad positions. If you're coming out pro-Israel, we're not going to be cool. But if you just, like, you know, have a different opinion of Bukharin than I do, then you know what? That's fine. Agreed. Cool. Well, uh, any other thoughts before we wrap it up here, guys? Yeah, just pro-Soviet Union stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool engineering and vehicles and shit. And uh, I'm just glad that my car doesn't have to start up in negative 90 degree Fahrenheit right. weather. That's that seems like a very big plus. I'm happy that my car has been starting when it's 20 out and I don't have the choke hooked up. <laughs> That's actually impressive. Yeah. Cool. 
I guess follow us on social media and um, we'll be back with uh, some more leftist car content sometime in the future whenever we uh, get around to recording and editing another episode. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. We gonna make you pay five with five bits. We make you pay five with water bits. We gonna fight racism, not racism, but we gonna fight the solidarity. We feel we not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us through something called the invisible hand. (laughs) What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.